Please take your Bibles now and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we'll begin in verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the churches being gathered together unto him, we learn a very significant truth, that this event will not occur, that the day of Christ will not come, until there first commences a great falling away from the faith, directly influenced by revealing the man of sin. The great instigator in leading the world away from the worship of God to become worshipers of himself. Ellicott on 2 Thessalonians 2.3, That man of sin, it is not absolutely certain from the Greek, but the context makes it tolerably clear that the man of sin is the head and center of the apostasy itself and does not form a separate movement from it. The man of sin then will have at one time formed or will still profess to form part of the Christian church and the apostasy will culminate in him. The phrase, the man of sin, might perhaps be only a poetical personification of a movement or of a class of men or of a succession of men. But the analogy of the parallel passages in Daniel 8 and then in Daniel 11 leads rather to the supposition that St. Paul looked for the coming of some actual individual who should be the impersonation of the movement of apostasy. The genitive, see notes in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, is like a forcible epithet. A man so wicked that, bad as other men are, wickedness should be his mark by which he is distinguished from all others. A man who belongs to sin, in whom the ideal of sin has become realized and incarnate. What kind of sin will be most prominent in him is not expressed in the word itself, but the context points clearly to that which is in fact the crowning sin, spiritual pride and rebellious arrogancy, end quote. When sin reaches its peak, led by the man of sin influencing men to betray God, Jesus Christ will return to not only destroy the son of perdition, but also to remove all ungodly rebellion once and for all. Thus, when the man of sin is revealed and sin is embraced as righteousness should be, very soon after, the Son of God shall appear with heaven's glory to destroy all who have, by freedom of choice, rejected God's rule over their lives. The apostle therefore strongly asserts that the day of Jesus Christ will not be at hand until there is first a great falling away from the faith, coinciding with the man of sin, the son of perdition being revealed in the world. No doubt there were, at the time, many foolish thoughts and conjectures concerning the Son of God's return and the beginning of the day of the Lord. Yet when Jesus' disciples asked him when he would restore the kingdom to Israel, his answer was, Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Certain things, like the times and seasons when biblical prophecy will be fulfilled, are not intended for even saints to know accurately. These secret things are purposed only for God's knowledge until the appointed time for their fulfillment. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, we read, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Again, God chooses to keep some things secret, and no amount of persistent inquiry by man can make them known. Deuteronomy 29, 29 the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. 
Thankfully, it is enough for the people of God to concern themselves with things that have been revealed and not foolishly inquire about those divine mysteries not purposed for any human being to know. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. Consequently, no true faith will ever be gained or advanced by searching for those hidden revelations of God that he, by his divine wisdom, has said no man should become aware of until the day of their fulfillment. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, we read, O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. This is from the Benson Commentary, quoted from McKnight. Men are not capable of penetrating into the depths of the divine wisdom, because revelation hath made known only what God hath willed and said and done, without disclosing the reasons either of His general or His particular conduct. The knowledge, whatever is above our present childish conceptions, is to be sought for, not here, but in the future state." End quote. Continuing with the Benson Commentary on Romans 11.33, "...for who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor, who hath given Him advice respecting either the planning or managing of the affairs of the universe, end quote. Human curiosity can do more to damage faith than strengthen it. And though the mystery of iniquity is already at work, it has not been seen or experienced in such a manner that sin has completely overthrown the truth. Yes, sin is rising at an alarming rate, but this does not mean that the day of Christ is immediately upon us or that we can pinpoint the exact time of Christ's arrival. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Ellicott on 2 Thessalonians 2.3 A falling away, that falling away, must undoubtedly imply that the persons so apostatizing had formerly held, or perhaps still professed to hold, the Christian faith. Men cannot fall from ground which they never occupied. This vast and dreadful apostasy, so clearly and prominently taught of the ancient church, and so mysterious to us, is further defined by the following words, as the apocalypse or manifestation of the man of sin. Of this revelation of Antichrist, the same word apocalypsis is used, which is often used of Christ. And thrice in St. Peter, so that we may expect to recognize Him when He comes as clearly as we shall recognize Christ. The conception of the Antichrist is not merely that of an opponent of the Christ, but of a rival Christ. There is a hideous parallelism between the two." Man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, with all great movements of evil, which this final apostasy from the faith will be, There needs to be a figurehead, someone for people to congregate around and who will validate their sinful desires. This someone is revealed in prophecy as the man of sin, the son of perdition. He will have a direct relationship with Satan and shall be at the center and assume the top position of what was previously thought to be Christ's church. He will possess no shame in rejecting the Godhead and divine law, and shall assert himself as the new ruler of man. He is termed Antichrist simply because he is the embodiment of sin and against he who died to remove it from the world. Sin is descriptive of his evil nature, and he shall seek to lead others to join him in embracing its full realization in their lives. We have seen in this world's history figures who were shadows of the Antichrist, Hitler being the most recent. Yet no matter how many in recorded history have attempted to take on this role, this new leader of the world will be exponentially greater and vastly more influential. The Antichrist war will not simply be directed at other governments, but against heaven itself. The casualties of this coming prophetic conflict will dwarf previous human wars, such as World War II in which an estimated 40 to 50 million people died. So great, the scriptures teach, will be the death 
throughout the earth during this future time that unless the day is cut short, no human life will be saved. As with the destruction of Jerusalem, without divine intervention, all would undoubtedly perish. And in Matthew 24, verse 22, we read, And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Though estimates are varied, as many as perhaps half of the world's entire population will perish during the Antichrist's ascension to prominence and worldwide authority. Yet it shall be because of his appearance and rise in religious and governmental influence that Jesus Christ will be given the heavenly direction to return and assume his rightful position as God's heir of all things. The appearance of the Antichrist and the calamity and treachery he shall bring to the world shall be met and supernaturally overthrown by the one sent by God to save the world. Thus along with the man of sin shall appear from heaven, the son of righteousness, God's true Christ. Evil will not be allowed to conquer simply because the God of the heavens, who is only good, will not let it. Sin will be met with punishment and unrighteousness will be replaced with justice. And this shall be accomplished by God's Son. Jesus Christ will assert heavenly power to eternally remove sin from the world and destroy its new human representative. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 now. Who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Here we see the hubris of this man of sin, as he will assume the position of God. In short, because of his jealousy of the one true God, he will allow no one but himself to be worshipped and followed. In the Antichrist's eyes, none are worthy of worship except for him, and he shall not tolerate any who reject his newly instituted religious system of government. Practically, there will exist, at least from an authoritative standpoint, only one religion, and the man of sin will oversee and enforce it as the new religion of this world. Very likely, not only will all Christian worship be removed, including every institution or church that promotes faith in Jesus Christ, but all other forms of worship too. Therefore, just as the shadows of the types of the Antichrist in the past sought to assert themselves above all that came before them, political and religious, so shall the man of sin do the same. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on 2 Thessalonians 2.4, the previous kingdoms had each one extraordinary person as its representative head and embodiment. Thus Babylon had Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persia had Cyrus, Greece had Alexander, and Antiochus Ephenes, the forerunner of Antichrist, so the fourth and last world kingdom under which we now live shall have one final head, the consecrated embodiment of all the sin and lawless iniquity which have been in pagan and papal Rome, end quote. To set the general context of the man of sin's place in biblical prophecy, and now he shall precede the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important to at least briefly look at the four Gentile kingdoms Daniel prophesied would lead to his appearance. In Daniel chapter 2, we have the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, symbolizing the great Gentile kingdoms that would arise, beginning with his own and ending with the man of sin's universal dominance. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, we begin, Thou, O king, in reference to Nebuchadnezzar, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and a part clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, 
which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of the potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And of the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. From the fourth kingdom, Rome, which will have the strength of iron, shall come a divided kingdom, represented by the feet and toes, consisting of iron and clay, partly strong and partly weak. The Matthew Henry Commentary on Daniel 2.44, the image represented the kingdoms of the earth that should successively rule the nations and influence the affairs of the Jewish church. One, the head of gold signified the Chaldean Empire, then in being. Two, the breast and arms of silver signified the empire of the Medes and Persians. Three, the belly and thighs of brass signified the Grecian empire founded by Alexander. Four, the legs and feet of iron signified the Roman empire. The Roman empire branched into ten kingdoms as the toes of these feet. Some are weak as clay, others strong as iron. Endeavors have often been used to unite them for strengthening the empire, but in vain, end quote. Daniel chapter 7 relates his dream in which the four kingdoms are represented by animals coming from the sea. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, we read, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. Ellicott on Daniel 7.2, the great sea in general. These words imply the Mediterranean. Such cannot be the meaning here, so that according to Daniel 7.17, we are justified in explaining the sea to mean the nations of the world, which are compared to the sea. The raging of the winds from the four quarters of the sky points to the various political and social agitations which disturb the world's history and lead to the changes and revolutions which mark its progress as it tends toward the end, end quote. Verse 3 now of Daniel 7. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, 
and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. For simplification's sake, we will include from Bence's commentary the primary characteristics of these beasts or kingdoms that shall arise from the sea. Benson on Daniel 7.4, The first was like a lion, the Chaldean or Babylonian empire, compared to the head of gold, the chief of metals, in the image represented to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. Is here represented as a lion, the king of beasts. It is represented as having eagle's wings to note the extent and rapidity of its conquests. That empire being advanced to its height within a few years by the conduct and arms of one single person, namely Nebuchadnezzar. I behold till the wings thereof were plucked or torn out as may be rendered. That is, it was checked in its progress by frequent defeats and rendered unable to make further conquests. Its wings were beginning to be plucked at the time of delivery of the, excuse me. Its wings were beginning to be plucked at the time of the delivery of this prophecy. For at this time the Medes and Persians were encroaching upon it. Belshazzar, the king now reigning, was the last of his race. And in the seventeenth year of his reign, Babylon was taken and the kingdom transferred to the Medes and Persians, end quote. Verse 5 now of Daniel 7. And behold another beast, a second like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Benson again on Daniel 7, 5. And behold, another beast like a bear. This is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, who, for their cruelty and greediness after blood, are compared to a bear, which is a most voracious and cruel animal. Bocart recounts several particulars wherein the Persians resembled bears, but the chief likeness consisted in what has been just mentioned, and this likeness was principally intended by the prophet, as may be inferred from the words of the text, Arise, devour much flesh. A bear, saith Aristotle, is an all-devouring animal. And so the Medo-Persians were great robbers and spoilers. And it raised of itself on one side. Some think the allusion is to the eastern quarter of the world, from whence the Persians came. Others to the elevation of the Persians above the Medes and Babylonians, which three powers are conceived to be meant by the three ribs in the mouth of the bear. But Sir Isaac Newton and Bishop Chandler, with great propriety, explained them as signifying the kingdoms of Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, which were conquered by it, but were not properly parts and members of its body. They might be called ribs as the conquest of them, much strengthened the Persian Empire, and they might be said to be between the teeth of the bear, as they were much grinded and oppressed by the Persians, end quote. Daniel 7, 6 now. And this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of its four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Benson on this verse. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard. This third kingdom is that of the Macedonians, or Grecians, who under the command of Alexander the Great overcame the Persians and reigned next after them, and is fitly compared to a leopard upon several accounts. The leopard is remarkable for its swiftness, and Alexander and the Macedonians were amazingly swift and rapid in their conquests. The leopard is a spotted animal, and so is a proper emblem, according to Bocart, of the different manners of the nations, which Alexander commanded, or according to Grotius, of the various manners of Alexander himself, who was sometimes merciful and sometimes cruel, sometimes temperate and sometimes drunken, sometimes abstemious and sometimes incontinent. The leopard, as Bocart observes, is of a small stature, but of great courage, 
so as not to be afraid to engage with the lion and the larger beasts. And so Alexander, a little king in comparison, of small stature too, and with a small army, dared to attack the king of the kings, that is Darius, whose kingdom was extended from the Aegean Sea to the Indies, which had upon the back of its four wings of a fowl. The Babylonian Empire was represented with two wings, but this is described with four. For as Jerome says, nothing was swifter than the victories of Alexander, who ran through all the countries from Elycrium and the Adriatic Sea to the Indian Ocean and the River Ganges, not so much fighting as conquering, and in six years he should have set in twelve, subjugated part of Europe and all Asia to himself. The beast had also four heads to denote the four kingdoms into which the same third kingdom should be divided, as it was from the death of Alexander among his four captains, Cassandra reigning over Macedon and Greece, Lysimachus over Thrace and Bithynia, Ptolemy over Egypt, and Seleucus over Syria, and dominion was given to it, which shows, as Jerome observes, that it was not owing to the fortitude of Alexander, but proceeded from the will of the Lord. And indeed, unless he had been directed, preserved, and assisted by the mighty power of God, how could Alexander, with 30,000 men, have overcome Darius with 600,000, and in so short a time have brought all the countries from Greece as far as to India into subjection. Bishop Newton, end quote. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 now. And after this I saw in the night visions, and beheld a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Benson on Daniel 7, 7, Behold, a fourth beast, this fourth kingdom, can be no other than the Roman Empire, which answers this emphatical description better than any of the former kingdoms. Dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and therefore compared to iron, Daniel 2.40. It devoured and break in pieces. It spread its arms and its terrors to a much greater extent than any of the preceding powers and entirely subdued all the remains of the former kingdoms and all the nations that had been subject to them. It reduced Macedon into a Roman province about 168 years, the kingdom of Pergamus about 133 years, Syria about 65 years, and Egypt about 30 years before Christ. And beside the remains of the Macedonian Empire, it subdued many other provinces and kingdoms, so that it might, by a very unusual figure, be said to devour the whole earth, to tread it down and break it in pieces, and become in a manner what the Roman writers delighted to call the empire of the whole world. The words of Dionysus Halicarnassus are very opposite of this subject. The city of Rome, says he, ruleth over all the earth as far as it is inhabited, and commands all the sea, not only that within the pillars of Hercules, but also the ocean, as far as it is navigable, having first and alone of all the celebrated kingdoms made the east and west the bounds of its empire, and its dominion hath continued longer than that of any other city or kingdom. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. This is intimidated by its having no name, having more cruel and horrid than any sort of beast whatever. And the Roman Empire was so multiform that it could not be pointed out by any one species of resemblance. And it was different from all kingdoms in its republican form of government. Its greatness, length of duration, and extent of dominion, but its chief distinction consisted in its having ten horns, which we find in Daniel 7.24, are ten kings or kingdoms. 
and these answer to the ten toes of the image in Daniel 2.42. The empire continued in its greatness till the reign of Theodosius the Great, and soon afterward the partition happened, and the broken form remained, for the ten kingdoms were to be no more united till the Ancient of Days should come." End quote. We live in the time described in Daniel, in which ten kings or kingdoms, corresponding to the ten toes of the image, are not united until God's will deems they should be. We know from Thessalonians that this time cannot come until the little horn, which hath a mouth speaking great things, arises to preeminence in the church and the world to unite the earth against the Lord and against His Christ. And now in Daniel 7, 9, And I behold the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And Barnes on this verse, I behold, I continued looking on these strange sights and contemplating these transformations. This implies that some time elapsed before all these things had occurred. He looked on until he saw a solemn judgment passed on this fourth beast particularly as if God had come forth in His majesty and glory to pronounce that judgment and to bring the power and arrogance of the beast to an end. And the Ancient of Days did sit, was seated for the purpose of judgment." End quote. Barnes also on Daniel 7.10, "...a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Streams of fire seemed to burst forth from his throne." Representations of this kind abound in the scriptures to illustrate the majesty and glory of God. Compare Revelation 4, 5. And out of the throne proceedeth lightnings and thunderings and voices. Exodus 19, 16, Habakkuk 3, 4, and Psalm 18, 8, end quote. Ellicott also in Daniel 7, 10. The books, the unerring record of man's thoughts, words, and deeds, which is written in the unfailing memory of God, end quote. Daniel chapter 7, verse 11 now. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I saw in the night visions and beheld one like the Son of Man, came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed." The majority of Daniel's prophecy has already been fulfilled. What he prophesied about Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and part of his prophecy of Rome's dominance is now recorded history. All that is left is for the little horn with a mouth speaking great things, issuing forth from the fourth beast and the remnants of Rome's influence to exercise authority in the world. Again, this is represented by Daniel 2.33, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Daniel then goes on to wonder about the truth of the fourth beast, diverse and unique from the others who made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 19 now. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the others which came up, and before whom three fell, 
even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Barnes on Daniel 7:19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. I desired to know particularly what was symbolized by that. He appears to have been satisfied with the most general intimations in regard to the first three beasts. For the kingdoms represented by them seem to have nothing very remarkable, but it was different in regards to the fourth. The beast itself was so remarkable, so fierce and terrific. The number of the horns was so great. The springing up of the little horn was so surprising. The character of that horn was so unusual. The judgment on it was so solemn. And the vision of one like the Son of Man coming to take possession of the kingdom. All these things were of so fearful and so uncommon a character that the mind of Daniel was peculiarly affected in the view of them. And he sought earnestly for a further explanation. In the description that Daniel here gives of the beast and the horns, he refers in the main to the same circumstances which he had before described, but he adds a few which he had before omitted, all tending to impress the mind more deeply with the fearful character of the momentous import of the vision. As, for instance, the fact that it had nails of brass and made war with the saints, end quote. When the fourth beast wars with the saints, God shall give the kingdom to the Son of Man and His saints. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22 now, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times, and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. This last dominion, or last power, that shall exert itself over the world's inhabitants, shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings who will arise, and one will be more predominant than the others. The little horn, the man of sin, will make war with the saints and prevail against them, ushering in the return of Christ. The Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve Him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. With respect to this fourth kingdom, sprouting from Rome, Albert Barnes's commentary states, Barnes on Daniel 7:24, it would be proud and ambitious, and particularly arrogant against God, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. Daniel 7.25. The Chaldee here rendered against means literally at or against the part of it and then against. The Vulgate Contra, the Greek pros, this would be fulfilled in one who would blaspheme God directly or who would be rebellious against his government and authority or who would complain of his administration and laws or who would give utterance to harsh 
and reproachable words against his real claims. It would find a fulfillment, obviously, in an open opposer of the claims and the authority of the true God, or in one the whole spirit and bearing of whose pretensions might be fairly construed as in fact an utterance of great words against him, end quote. The rebellion orchestrated by the little horn spoken of in Daniel will be a universal condemnation of God's laws, led by him the apostasy that began in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Departing from God's word shall be allowed to grow until it is engulfed the entire world. Because a great majority of this world's inhabitants shall freely and willingly join themselves to the man of sin and his rebellion against God, heaven in the person of Jesus Christ shall intervene one last time to deal with sin. The book of Revelation reveals other cataclysmic events that will transpire at this time. There will be a great tribulation, one the world has never seen before and will never see again. Yet, after a short period of three and a half years, Jesus will return to destroy the Antichrist and establish peace on earth. The Lord shall overcome evil, and evil will no longer exist. Hence, with the removal of sin and all its ungodly proponents, harmony, peace, and unity, not only between God and man, but between man and man, shall return. And all this shall be accomplished by the power given to the Son, enabling Him to rule all things according to God's will. And now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Remember ye not that when it was yet with you, I told you these things. Barnes on this verse, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. The whole subject of the second coming of the Savior seems to have constituted an important part of the instructions of Paul when at Thessalonica. He now refers them, he now refers them to what he had told them respecting the great apostasy to show that his views had not changed and that he did not mean to have them understand that the world would soon come to an end. He had stated these things to them implying that a considerable interval must elapse before the Savior would appear, end quote. False prophets, unknown to most, have as their primary objective to bring doubt upon the true word of God. Thus, whenever those not led by the Holy Spirit make claims concerning the future of the world or anything else for that matter, which do not come to pass, people are left to wonder if any revelation said to come from God can be trusted. For this reason, God's word reveals that we should try the spirits or those who claim to be speaking by the spirit, lest false prophecies and prophets are mistakenly thought to be true. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they're of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And now verse 6. And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Much has been written about this verse, and much has been speculated about what power withholds the Antichrist's arrival on the earth. The simple answer is that it is God. Like with many things, the simplest explanation is often the right one. So if the Thessalonian believers were troubled about the many false and misleading prophecies of the day, they need only to be reminded that the God of the heavens remains in control of coming world events. In Daniel 2.21 we read, And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. And Barnes on Daniel 2.21, And he changeth the times and the seasons. The object of this is to assert the general control of God in reference to all changes which occur. The assertion is made undoubtedly in view of the revolutions in empire which Daniel now saw. 
from the signification of the dream were to take place under the divine hand, foreseeing now these vast changes denoted by different parts of the image. Stretching into far distant times, Daniel was led to ascribe to God the control over all the revolutions which occur on the earth. End quote. Verse 7 now. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The mystery of iniquity is a concealed force that seeks to promote sin and rebellion against God. This power can be observed in government, media, and many other places where men hold an extensive amount of influence in the world, as well as in the general direction of sins spread in the world. And though this force is not as widespread as it one day will be, the mystery of iniquity is at work today, leading people away from God and encouraging them to live their lives according to their own sinful and carnal desires and pattern themselves after he who introduced sin in the world. Benson on this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, For the mystery of iniquity, there is a mystery of iniquity as well as of godliness, the one in direct opposition to the other. The expression a mystery in the scripture sense of it is something secret or undiscovered. The mystery of iniquity, therefore, is a scheme of error, not openly discovered, whose influence is to encourage iniquity. Doth already work, worketh inwardly, in men's minds or in the church, and perhaps also secretly. The seeds of corruption were sown, but they were not yet grown up to any maturity. The leaven was fermenting in some parts, but it was far from having yet infected the whole mass. To speak without a figure, the apostle means that the false doctrines and bad practices, which he foresaw in after times would be carried to a great height by the power which he denominates the man of sin, were already operate in the false teachers who then infested the church. End quote. Verse 8 now. And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Regardless of whatever glory, power, and might the man of sin accumulates during his brief time of rulership, it shall be quickly dissolved when the Lord comes in the power and glory of the Father. Whatever delusions the Antichrist has tricked the world into believing, concerning his authority to rule as God, will also be exposed as a lie when the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, returns to the earth. For then both the counterfeit and the genuine shall be examined side by side. And it will be seen how foolish rebels were who trusted in one who possessed only an illusion of spiritual power, while simultaneously rejecting God's true heavenly power personified in God's Son. The Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. In the end, the word of God on the lips of the Son of God, accompanied by the brightness of his glory, shall consume and destroy the man of sin. Good shall overcome evil and light shall be proven to be much greater than darkness. Christ therefore shall destroy with the brightness of his coming the one who deceived a great part of this world. Benson on 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Literally, the bright shining of His coming. And means that as darkness is dispelled by the rising of the sun, so the mystery of iniquity shall be destroyed by the luster with which Christ will cause the true doctrine of the gospel to shine. End quote. And the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on 2 Thessalonians 2.8 with the brightness of His coming, Greek, the manifestation or appearance of His presence, the first outburst of His advent, the first gleam of His presence, is enough to abolishly, utterly all traces of Antichrist as darkness disappears before the dawning day, end quote. It is worthy of note that Jesus is spoken of in Scripture as appearing in light. 
possessing a brilliant countenance likened to the sun. This is the true image of the Son of God now, though sadly most still only view the Lord Jesus as He was in His human form on the earth. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, we read, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto the fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And Barnes on Revelation 1.16 was as the sun shineth in his strength, in his full splendor, when unobscured by clouds, where his rays are in no way intercepted. Compare Judges 5.31, But let them that love him, the Lord, be as the sun when it goeth forth in his might. And 2 Samuel 23.4, And he shall be as the light of the morning, when the sun ariseth, even a morning without clouds. And then Psalms 19.5, which the sun is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. There could be no more striking description of the majesty and glory of the countenance than to compare it with the overpowering splendor of the sun. End quote. Verse 9 now. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. The apostle informs the Thessalonians that the man of sin's coming is directly linked to Satan, and therefore he will have the same illusion of power. See, the devil has no inherent divine spiritual authority. Thus he must resort to deception and lies to maintain influence over man. The man of sin's Satan's progeny will do the same. This son of perdition will possess only illusion of power, signs and wonders. Yet the Spirit of Christ, which lives in His people, will prevent God's elect from falling prey to His deceptions. And in Matthew 24, verse 24, we read, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And Barnes on Matthew 24, 24, If it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So nearly would their pretended miracles resemble true miracles as to render it difficult to detect the imposter. So much so that if it were possible, they would persuade even true Christians that they were the Messiah. But that was not possible. His real friends would be too firmly established in the belief that he was the Christ to be wholly led away by others. Christians may be sometimes led far astray. They may be in doubt about some great doctrines of religion. They may be perplexed by the cavils and cunning craftiness of those who do not love the truth. But they cannot be entirely deceived and seduced from the Savior. Our Savior says that if this were possible, it would be done then, but it was not possible, end quote.